Chef David Chang and the members of the Recipe Club sift through millions of search results to find the very best way to make the food you want to eat. Each week, they cook three recipes for the same dish, debate them, and ultimately declare the winning recipe. Check out Recipe Club on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, it's the new lead singer for Androgynous. It's Andy Greenwald. Listen, I know that it's going to be misconstrued, but it was a fair process. Okay. The lead singer left to attend university at Cal Berkeley through a yes. very arcane admission system <laughs> that apparently is bespoke. Hollering at a professor. Yeah. Siobhan I mean, if I had known... And so I'm thrilled to be covering Mannequin Pussy songs with my new best friends. Thank you. Uh, Andy, welcome to the Watch Podcast. This is going up on Sunday night uh, after the airing of the finale of Mayor of Easttown. We've got a special interview on this episode with the creator and writer of Mayor of Easttown, Brad Inglesby. Uh, we hope to have some more special Mayor guests this week, but Andy and I are going to be dedicating this episode entirely to Mayor. Uh, hopefully you've just watched the finale because this will be full of spoilers. We're going to do our discussion of the last episode and then we'll get into our talk with Brad. Brad was awesome. It was great to talk to a fellow greater Philadelphian uh, and talk about what an amazing uh, show this has been. And I guess we'll start there. Um, I gave this two thumbs up. I, I, I give this like all the sort of hosannas you could throw at it. I think that over the last couple of weeks, we we've talked a little bit about some of the stop-start nature, uh, the the sort of needing to conform to mystery tropes and, and prestige mystery tropes that the show had kind of gone through, in some cases bucked against, in some cases embraced. But this episode, this final episode, reminded me most about like the of the first episode. Uh, it went back to that feeling of an incredibly lived-in world uh, of real relationships between real-seeming people, and even though it had a lot of twists and a lot of 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 fakeouts. I thought it was like a really, really emotionally satisfying finale. I couldn't agree more. I loved it. I was so impressed by it. And as I mentioned to Brad in the interview that we're going to run later, and as I've been saying for weeks, I found processing the show to be so interesting because it just keeps cleaving into left brain and right brain reactions, where I am at once kind of gobsmacked by the um, structure and the the technique and the talent involved with pulling this off. And then probably more powerfully, which I think is the goal, swept away on a tide of, of genuine emotion. And both of those things are hard to do in a TV show. And I think very rarely do you get a show that can do both and can particularly can peak on both sides of the ball, uh, as the coach of the Lady Hawks might say, 
right when you need it, need it most in crunch time in the finale. So we will get into the specific twists and turns, but I just want to say that this finale was kind of a masterclass in having cake and eating it too, because contrary to what many people might have thought uh, heading into the finale from a cliffhanger, that whole cliffhanger, that was wrapped up in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. We went right at it. No one got annoyed. No, it didn't overstay its welcome. We were rolling around to the fishing spot. John just answered all the questions. <laughs> he basically, he answered all the questions. And then yeah. what's fun is that Inglesby and Zobel and the whole team are playing with our expectations because part of me is like, I'm good. Like, we don't need more. John did it. Now we can spend the rest of the time with Mayor sorting out her shit. And that would be satisfying. And yet, a lot of time left on the clock. Mm -hmm. A lot of time left on the clock. So there's another shoe left to drop. So you're feeling both sides of it. You get the resolution. You get the emotional payoff of those of that juicy middle section that has the incredible Gene Smart Kate Winslet scene at, at lunch. You get the fun of, of um, Frank's wedding. Uh, even Faye gets to say a line, which was long overdue. <laughs> Shout out to her. Um, but I believe that's Michael Shannon's wife, by the way. Have you mentioned that on the podcast? Oh, I didn't know that. An actress in her own right. I mean, just the, the cast is so stacked that you can have talented stage actors just in the background doing what they do best. But actually, not even what they do best, just doing. And then there's potential for more. Anyway, so that's all of the, which is the brain that's the not creative brain? Right brain? I, I don't. Oh, brain? I only have one of them. I only I, have the creative right. side, so I don't know. Okay, so yeah, so I don't even know. If I had that brain, I would be able to tell you which, which poll. The other half of it was, as, as we've said from the beginning, I, it almost didn't matter because the emotion between, particularly, obviously, building up to the mayor and Lori scenes, um, the, the seriousness and respect with which the show treated the heaviest of possible scenarios and put them in a position to, and again, this is something that Brad will speak about with us later, remind us that the show was always about very unfashionable ideas like kindness and mercy, I thought was a gift. I thought it was just artfully done. I was much more moved than I even expected to be. Uh, to be by it. And I thought it was a really wonderful example of a finale using its time to remind people and to really firmly establish what the show was always about. And despite all the fun we had scurrying down Reddit back alleys and conspiracy theories and who did it or who else did it. Are you, st are you still on Siobhan Island? You still think there's some questions that haven't been answered? Look, not only am I not on Siobhan Island, I she won't step on state. it here. <laughs> That's true. No extradition laws in California, as you and I both know. Um, I won't step on it. Brad very respectfully pointed out something to us that I ignored conveniently to be like Siobhan is a criminal mastermind when in fact she has always been set up as the opposite. Yeah. The angel um, of mercy. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's really something. And I, and I was really appreciating the show just as a, as a, as a work of art on its own right, but also as a corrective to what a lot of, a lot of years of dark, dark, dark prestige television has done to us and done to our TV watching brains. You know, last week we talked a little bit about both wanting to and wondering whether there was ever a different episode order for this show, if mm -hmm. there was ever uh, a version of it that was eight episodes or nine episodes or 10 episodes or a little bit more expansive. Because I think that, you know, there have been moments where I've, selfishly, I've just wanted to spend a little bit more time in like just soaking in it. Like that was the, my favorite thing about the first episode was the way in which it just basically followed this woman as she went through her her basic working day, you know, and we just got to visit all these different parts of the city or the town. And we got to meet all these different people through her, her eyes. And I thought that the end of the, the season kind of returned to that feeling of this is mayor just kind of like talking to her daughter and then going to talk to, to Lori or whatever. 
But I actually think, you know, it's worth revisiting that conversation just because you could make the argument that there are three episodes in episode seven. You know, there is the John Billy resolution, there's the Ryan mystery, and then there is Laurie and Mare and Siobhan leaving and... And Mare's emotional uh, And Mare's sort of like, yeah. And now that mirrors more, I think, an episode, like a season of The Wire. So where The Wire kind of culminates in the second to last episode and then the 10th episode is kind of like, where are we and where are we going? Mm -hmm. Um, Did you find yourself wishing that there was a little bit more room to breathe in this episode? Or did you think that like the kind of, the, the sort of sharp left turns it made worked well? I think it worked well because it was cashing a check that they had smartly written at the beginning. Um, and obviously that worked on a number of levels because the show opens with a prowler in front of the couple's home and we return there and that's a key piece of information. And and again and again, I, I just said this is a slight digression, but yeah, I mean, we didn't even know old Ridley officer Chekhov had a gun in his shed. It didn't matter. We knew we would come back there on some point at some point, but there's a version of of that where you feel manipulated and there's a version of that where you feel gratified and thrilled. How exciting to see that circle squared off in that way. And the, and the show did that again and again, even to the point, I believe, and I'm curious what the internet reaction is going to be, but I think the leading theories were John did it, John and Lori did it, Ryan did it. Well, all of that was true. Mm-hmm. And it didn't feel cheap. It, it, it kind of felt burned. So Ryan anyway, was in the mix. Ryan was definitely in the mix on, uh, I, I, after watching the show, I did check out some mm-hmm. some odds makers and Ryan was in the mix because like with a lot of the characters, the camera lingered for a long time on a lot of them, yeah. which was good because it created a world and it was also good because it created potential suspects. But to specifically answer your question, sorry, that I think that the, the thing that the, the check that the finale cashed was based on the show's deep um, attention and respect for um, a large number of characters. It was a large community. And we were invested in so many people. And I think that the danger of an event series, a limited series, or specifically a murder mystery show is that it telescopes everyone's lives or their death into a very, very fraught short period of time where everything important happens only in this period of time. And what was so cool about the finale was that it exhaled, it breathed. And I think that that was deeply respectful because the show is, for as much as it was about finding those girls, for as much as it was about solving Aaron's crime, it also was probably more interested in Mayor working through a absolute atom bomb of emotional fallout that was living inside of her. And you can't do that in five days, two weeks, or whatever the time span of the series is. So I didn't feel cheated at all. I felt thrilled that time was moving now and that, yeah. and that and we had a larger sense of where people were and that this wasn't the defining moment for any of them necessarily. I can't tell you how delighted I was at the moment after John confesses, which now in retrospect was like way too uh, <laughs> generous of a confession, you know, when he's just like, anything else I can help you guys with here? <laughs> like, no, no, not only do I not want a lawyer, I don't even require another chair in the room. Exactly. Like, we're, gonna, we're not going to be here long. And I just want to stress, Ryan had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> you know? Yes. Like, um, and when, when he does all that and he goes to court and everything, and I, you see the amount of time left in the episode, I was actually like elated because I was like, there's so much stuff here that I would just do. I, I would love to just spend time with Mare and Beth or Mare and Deacon Mark or Mare and her, you know, whoever. Um, the Ryan stuff was, I thought it was just really like sharply done. I'm sure people might be like, well, you know, what about this? And what about that? And like, how, how come we never knew that he was also the yard doing that guy's yard? Mm-hmm. But it was very tight. And it then creates this amazing parallel between Mare's life 
with her losing her son and Lori's life with her losing her son figuratively. I thought the cool thing was, and we could talk a little bit about this, is most shows give you clues. So you, you're going through a mystery show and you're just sort of watching for weird behavior. And I think Mayor of Easttown, you, you could say knowingly or you could say um, manipulatively, did a lot of those reaction shots that you're talking about where it's like, you know, Neil looking, Neil, Neil, was it Neil Huff is the actor, right? The actor. I, I, he's, he's, the, uh, he's the cousin. He's the cousin uh, who's the priest. A couple of reaction shots to him where it's just like, this is lingering just like a little longer than you would normally. But for me, the clues were more behavioral and they were more thematic and they were more emotional. Like, I mean, we talked to Brad a little bit about this, but the mirroring of the relationship between Bethy and Dawn and Dawn not telling Beth about, uh, about Freddie extorting her kind of inverted is what Lori does to protect her family against Mare and sort of, I mean, uh, honestly, obstruct justice for, for, for a little bit there. But, you know, Eve, and, and then the Zabel stuff, like Zabel kind of quickly exits the stage and really there's just that mother scene where she slaps uh, Mare. But for the most part, like the, the reason why Mare discovers it's Ryan is because she's sort of following this ideal yeah. of police work that the Zabel sets up. Yeah, I, specifically to the Ryan thing, I just want to say like, the reason why it works for me is because like everything we're talking about, it is grounded in the emotional. And I feel like in whodunits, there are generally two kinds of reveals of who did it. And one that we see a lot of is when the mask drops and a person who seemed nice is revealed to be a sociopath. And then the actor, I'm specifically thinking of the lead actor who was on our podcast, whom we adore from a previous HBO prestige who'd done it earlier in the year gets to play that part of a character, which is really right. fun for a villain or for an actor to, for an actor to play a villain. This it's a child. Mm -hmm. And what we're focused on in that moment is he, he's so scared and he runs to his mother, you know, and it's primal and it's devastating and it's devastating because of, as you said, we understand Lori, we understand her hardship, her struggles, and we understand how what a rock she has been for Mare, who has been the poster child for familial strife. And, you know, there's no, at least in terms of the audience of me, it's it's kind of a beautiful ending because there isn't judgment in it. Mm -hmm. It's a cascading series of disastrous yeah, she's mistakes. She's so sweet to him when when she's telling him like he's gonna get fingerprinted and then this is gonna happen. Oh, when Mare is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and and once again, I can't help myself, like that that double success where there's the performance emotional character success and the meta success which is you don't hire julian nicholson just to be a good friend mm -hmm. i mean you're lucky if you do it's fantastic because she's one of the best actresses out there but part of you is like something's coming something's yeah. coming and then when something is coming is a scene of just pure raw grief like what occurs and connection at the same time like what occurs in the kitchen between Kate Winslet, actor on the top of her game, Julia Nicholson, actor at the top of her game. I mean, it's really powerful on a number of levels just to watch it and experience it. You don't hire Julia Nicholson to not do anything, but you do hire Guy Pierce to put yes. a couple of duffel bags into a rented car as he drives off to Bates. Can First I of all, I didn't know you could rent Miatas. Second, I don't know if people can hear this, but usually, because usually beach volleyball is not an audio game. You don't <laughs> listen to it on the radio, but I set up something there and Chris spiked it and that was without communication. <laughs> Let me throw a bounce of theory off of you. Okay. Mayor of Easttown is actually a time travel story mm -hmm. about the origins of Richard's writing career mm -hmm. because he's formerly known as Ryan 
He goes to juvie and discovers a love of writing. Wins later on, like becomes this great novelist. Whoa! And then, and then, time travel has been invented, and he goes back in time to see his young self become a writer. So, when we were saying that Mayor of Easttown is dark, we were actually saying it was the German <laughs> it was show like dark. The Netflix show dark. Um, yeah, I mean, I just thought I would point out that um, it's incredible. If you could choose right now, if you could choose between a one-year contract to teach literature or creative writing at Bates and right. being being in a relationship with Kate Winslet, what would you choose? Well, Bates is in Maine, right? No, I mean, come yeah. on. Of course. <laughs> There's not any question. My guy seems to be the happiest he's ever been. He's yeah. a great supporter of local businesses, all the hoagie shops, um, as well as the one basket store that sells hoagie-sized baskets. Um, so I do want to focus on this. My main reaction to the revelation that Richard wasn't even a red herring, he wasn't even a fish, he was just a minor just supporting a, just character. Just a guy, yeah. Just a nice guy. Um, was that this was an probably the all-time HBO casting flex where, and again, there's a meta element to this too. Well, if you can pay for a world-class actor to play this small town part, uh, baked into that is, well, there's another big honking, you know, flashing light mm-hmm. that will draw people's attention and that's fun. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. I'll say that in the scheme of things, I, I, you know, you can sort of see the perspective that the character was there to offer an open door to Mare. You know, maybe not as as beautiful an image as the open attic door at the end, but there is another way. There is a way forward. As she says to, um, I'm forgetting the guy's name, the cop who had the gun, who lost his wife, Betty's husband, it doesn't get better, but you learn to live with the unacceptable. And then, it, and then by living, there are other things that happen. And that's kind of what life is. I get all that. I think that I did go back and determine, because I think we were also kind of, in, hopefully in good spirits, poking fun at the fact that a lot of the Guy Pierce scenes seem set in completely different seasons sure. as the rest of Mare. There's so, like a feeling but, where I think the Guy Pierce stuff and the therapist stuff feels like a little bit in a band outside of everything else. What I, what I can tell you is that when Mare started filming in late 2019, early 2020, whenever it exactly was, I think it was early 2020, a British actor named Ben Miles, who's on The Crown, was playing the part of Richard. Mm-hmm. And then when they reconvened post-COVID, Guy Pierce was playing the part. And I, my, my assumption is, I don't think like I'm breaking news or telling a no, secret, that was, yeah, is that in, in, COVID regulations, like he couldn't come back, scheduling, maybe he was working, or maybe he couldn't travel. Guy Pierce was already in Philly. <laughs> well, that's the piece that we need to get to the bottom of. And we should tell people now, we ran out of time with Brad Inglesby. We could not get to that specific question. But it's weird. He was a nice guy. But you're talking, you're joking about, would you rather go to Bates or be in a relationship with Kate Winslet? I think the more relevant question is, would you rather star in a middling feature film or just have a couple scenes with Kate Winslet for an HBO show? I think you, cho- you choose, for both scenarios, you choose Kate Winslet. The, I mean, it, it speaks to the uh, different directions this could have gone. Yeah. You know, all the different ways in which this could have gone. There, there are enough sort of hints and feints at different characters, whether it's Deacon Mark or Frank or uh, Dylan, where you're like, Oh, maybe it's this person. Maybe it's that person. I think that, you know, when we talk to Brad about this, we'll get to our interview with him shortly. But, you know, you were really articulate about the idea that this show is ultimately about kindness, that this show is ultimately about mercy, that this show is ultimately about forgiveness. How do you balance wanting that, Mm. you know, versus all the characters at once seemingly coming to like a kind of place of emotional clarity? 
You know what I mean? In their own way, where Dylan's showing up at Lori's door and is like, here's $3,600 for you yeah. know, this kid's checking I, account or, 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 you know, Helen saying, finally saying to her, her daughter that like, you know, the things that she's been blaming for her, herself about are not her fault. I think that I'd like to answer your very sharp and specific question with a large cloud of generalities. And what I mean by that well, is... Well, you didn't write the show. I, I guess I'm, I, no, I, guess I but, mean but more I, like I, there I might be question. some people who think, hey, like all of these people all no. arrived at this same moment I, of clarity. I love the question. And I think my answer is basically, I feel separate and apart from the show that I think we may have gone too far culturally. And what I mean is, or creatively. And what I mean by that is, Picasso could be Picasso because he could also paint a still life. And I understand that the last 20 years of... TV storytelling, I'll leave it to that, have been very much about pushing the limits and boundaries of what had been a hidebound, predictable, and traditional medium. And we've gone in incredible places. And hopefully, people will continue to keep pushing the boundaries of what the format can even be. But there's a difference between, you know, good faith pushing of boundaries for stories and just rejecting things because they are what's been done or what's mm -hmm. expected or because it's what feels right. It's a TV show. I mean, it's a weird answer, but it's kind of what I felt. And I loved that it embraced it. It played with the conventions of a whodunit. It played with the conventions of a small town story. But it, as we were saying, it is a story about acceptance, forgiveness, redemption, mercy, moving on with life in the face of the unimaginable, uh, shouts to Hamilton. And because of that, characters at a certain point are going to behave like characters. You know, they, they are going to serve the larger thematic purposes, if not the larger plot purposes of the show. Yeah. And what's impressive to me about it is kind of echoing of what we said before, which is do it badly, do it with bad faith emotion or unearned emotion, and it feels manipulative. Do it beautifully, and you get caught up in it. And there's nothing wrong, I think, with being caught up with a show's emotion. If you trust the people carrying you. And that right. was my takeaway from the from last night. I mean, I think it's ultimately about a place that does very much exist and ha draws from, I think, various localities around like East Town, but like you know, Chester County and like the sort of cultural sort of trappings of the greater Philadelphia mm -hmm. area in general. And, you know, like the sort of public perception of Philadelphia in this area in general would be <laughs> um, that if if Dylan shows up in your door at your door wearing a flyers jersey <laughs> that he is probably not there to be charitable or to do the right thing but i think what they were trying to do with this show is depict a place that has been hollowed out it's yeah. been hollowed out by losing its sense of purpose in the sort of industrial sense it's uh been hollowed out by opiates it's been hollowed out by the collapse of institutions and um how do you rebuild that how do you rebuild any mm -hmm. kind of sense of community? Well, I guess you have to do it through friends and family, especially when the church is sort of teetering there. And that's what Deacon Mark is kind of talking about. You know, it's yep. just like this community is only as, it's really a basically only as good as we make it. You know, there's not going to be, there's not some other entity that's going to make it any better. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to, to talk about in 2021 and it can get hokey at times because you, you have everybody kind of rowing in the same direction. Yeah. You're going to notice. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think there's two different modes of storytelling when it comes to um, depicting hardships. And one method is the scared straight method, right? Which is just like, we are going to show you without blinking 
the unvarnished horror of drug addiction, what mm-hmm. it does to a community, what it does to a person's body, what it does to some to a community's soul. And there are valid projects that take that approach personally, just in terms of my own taste and also in terms of how I receive in, information and learn from it. I wouldn't say this is sugaring the pill. I think that what Mayor of Easttown does in terms of its view of a community is it it doesn't really flinch from horrific things. Um, I mean, Mayor's entire recent, Mayor's five-year run is a testament to that, right? Right. But it also shows that even when things are frayed, it doesn't mean they're broken. And some people are able to rebuild and some people aren't, but life goes on. And I, and I, and I find that to be more, not just more moving or more, you know, feel good, but also I find it to be more instructive because it, it leaves people with a sense of what, you know, of, of somewhere to go, somewhere to go next. And I feel like as, as I'm saying this, I feel like I'm echoing things that I was reading about like political messaging last year, which mm-hmm. is just, you know, getting people angry isn't effective. Because, you know, anger is, anger is an emotion that keeps you hopped up on a certain level and not actually connecting. But if you pivot and you tell them about what something positive is or how to connect to things, I don't know. It, it, clearly, this taps into something more basic or about human communications. And I, I didn't major in communication, so I don't know. But yeah, that works yeah. for me. I mean, I was thinking, I often thought of True Detective when I was watching this show. I think you also always because... Think of, you often think of True Detective anyway. Well, I think mostly because True Detective also had a, such a great sense of place. You know what I mean? And a, a place that I don't think that we had seen a lot of on TV before, that that rural Louisiana, which I know True Blood also mined and has become like a very sort of uh, de facto like set for a lot of productions right. because of Louisiana text breaks for filming. But, you know, that need for... And I think that this is where the Reddit brain kind of gets born is that idea that it is Carcosa and it is this sort of occult political and also like underground conspiracy to manipulate the populace through a variety of ways. And so that's where our mind starts to go is like it starts to go towards the church or it starts to go towards this cabal of like, you know, disaffected dads in the community, you know. And it ultimately wound up being the simplest of explanations, which is just like a kid who lost control of his emotions and then a bunch of people covering up for that. What did you think of it as a crime show? What did you ultimately think of Mare in terms of like how it it sort of played the game and also changed the game? I mean, I, I'm probably, I don't want to repeat myself. I also feel like this isn't a surprise. Like I, I, I loved it as a crime show because as we say repeatedly when we talk about our favorite crime novels, they're always about the community. They're mm-hmm. always about the the vibe. They're always about the language and the and the the atmosphere and the experience much more than they are about the TikTok of of who did it, when they did it, and and why. You know, instantly I was just on board because I and I actually just recently gifted you one of these books. I wanted to mention it before we finished talking about the show. But there's a series of novels by a writer called Casey Constantine. It was a um, it's the initials KC Constantine, like the uh, ill fated on screens. <laughs> DC oh, vertigo much beloved though, I think. yeah I think so um who wrote I, I don't believe he's still with us and it was this it was a pseudonym but he just wrote like three dozen mysteries set in small town Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh where everyone kind of knows each other and then terrible things happen but then also there's like a tomato crop to handle and they're wonderful and they're completely lived in and so I immediately was on board for that because it felt like that like half the crimes are her high school best friend's brother is running around or as we heard in this last episode there's a cat litter situation right you know what i mean but then also sometimes really horrific things happen and i think the show did did handle it correctly uh the balance between this is 
more working, like workaday level crime in a community with our main character has to be a superhero, which it has to, like, again, that's a convention. She has yeah. to be. Yeah. So I, 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 I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed that the way the, the information was doled out in such a way and the emotion was doled out in such a way that I felt it was an appropriate pace for the investigation. But the emotion was such that it kept me focused on the right thing. So that if you ask me about like Mare's, did she handle this procedure correctly in episode four? I don't remember. Right, right. No, I don't, I don't think so either. I, I think that um, I'm curious to see whether now with like the benefit of hindsight, looking at the complete statement of the show, mm-hmm. I have to take some time myself to even think about it. Is like this, like Zabel is at once like the X factor of the show. I think he totally changes the energy of it. He arguably steals the, the, some scenes from Kate Winslet at times, especially when they're in bars together. But at the same time, his death kind of is the turning point of the show and whether or not the show totally grappled with Zabel getting executed. Like, I think that that is, I think I, I care less about it now than I did a week ago, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that was the show. In a way, the Zabel character's arc was the show's biggest swing. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it was a victim of its own success because, I mean, Evan Peters yeah. crushed that, it. Like, that's career-redefining like, role. That's like, you know, uh, Aaron Paul on Breaking Bad. You're just like, oh my God, like, I didn't know he could do this. Yeah. yeah, and now I just want to keep watching him. And then because it was, you know, this is designed as a one-season show, they did the thing that, that Vince Gilligan was going to do to Aaron Paul in the first season of Breaking Bad, um, but without multiple seasons to, to handle the ramifications. I think that much like we're saying, we're paying so much attention to Richard because we recognize the actor. Um, Evan Peters made such an impression that I don't think the show was almost prepared to handle his absence because the gravity wasn't intended to swing that far in his direction. The result of such an incredible performance was the show's weakest episode falling in an odd place, which was the penultimate episode, you know, but again, the last episode spanned so much time and then there was so much stuff for Mare that it, the fact that he and the emotions of his loss and everything went into the rear view relatively quickly, it's one of those things that if you, from, yeah, like if you, if you poked at it like a scab, I, I think I could be on board with, with nitpicking it, but I, I was ready to move on once this episode hit the ground running the way that it did. Do you want more? More Mare? Mm-hmm. I stand by what I said before, and and for people wondering, we we asked Brad this directly in the interview, so we won't step on his answer. But there are no rules in TV anymore, and he doesn't need to say. No one needs to say. Nothing ever really dies on television, except maybe Detective. You just got to pull the Larry David. You just never, you never cancel yeah. yourself. You like never, can, you never self cancel. You yeah. just. If and when there's another story, I mean that in the traditional sense of canceling yeah, a television show, not in the cancel cancel. Yeah, there's if there's another story. How fantastic. And HBO is, a, you know, I, I would like to think that all streaming services and or networks would behave this way, but HBO has a history of being artist friendly and creative friendly, and they're not just going to green light something unless there's a reason to do it. I mean, maybe the overlords at Discovery who are about to get the keys feel differently, but, you know, this you can kind of tell, and we could pick this up in the interview with Brad and, and in our interview with, with Kate. We don't know what goes on. I mean, productions are challenging and hard and people lose their temper and whatever, but this has good vibes. Like mm-hmm. it just, you could feel the good vibes from the people who worked on it, their affection for it. Um, you could feel it. I know that's kind of touchy-feely, but you get that sense from watching it and just the deep, deep bench of incredible performers who contributed to it. And, you know, I'm realizing 
just to say, like, I don't think we've ever said the name John Douglas Thompson on the podcast. He plays the police chief. Wonderful actor. Yeah. One of one of America, if not the world's great classical stage actors who rarely does TV or movies, although he was the weird doctor in that Meryl Streep Soderbergh boat movie. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. And he's just crushing it quietly, you know, on the show or Joe Tippett, who plays who plays John. Like it's a it's a really complex and nuanced performance. Anyway, all this is to say, when you capture lightning in a bottle, you don't need to go out and capture more lightning. But hey, you did it once. So, yeah, I want more. I just don't. It, it would I'm, have to I'm be patient. a different show. I don't think people would be able to kind of. I don't, I don't think it would work if it was another family close to Mare embroiled in a, right. a sort no, of no. Byzantine totally murder right. investigation. But I think that there's more. There's more stuff there. There's. There just. It just feels like a bigger. A bigger story to me. So I, I do hope that if they love doing it, that they go back to it. Uh, let's get into our our interview with Brad Inglesby, who was nice enough to spend a half an hour talking about uh, his creation with us. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's a testament to how much we loved it that I needed to come back to Philadelphia to do this podcast. <laughs> yeah, he needed to like soak it up. I seriously, I'm, I'm doing this from Fairmount, so I hope you. Oh my gosh! If, if he moves his, if he moves his screen, you'll just see the floor is littered with tasty cake wrappers. <laughs> 
It's like we are embracing, embracing <laughs> the culture. So that's so good, guys. That is so good. <laughs> uh, Andy and I are so, so honored to be joined by Brad Inglesby, who I believe is our first Villanova alumnus ever, if I'm correct. We, we tried, we efforted for Kyle Lowry, but he was, he was unavailable right now. But uh, Brad is the great. creator and writer of Mayor of Easttown, which just concluded its majestic, its majestic run on HBO. Brad, thank you for joining us on The Watch, man. Of course, guys. I really appreciate you having me here. And Brad, your congratulations on the achievement. We're recording this on Thursday, and you are now three days away from the finale airing for this project that I know has consumed your professional life for a number <laughs> of years, more years than you anticipated when you got into it. Um, mm-hmm. The audience will be hearing this after finally seeing the finale. People were dying to find out what was going on. They were desperate to hear the conclusion. So clearly, there's only one place for this interview to start, and it's this. How about them Sixers? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 2-0 right now. I'll take it. I'll take it. Although the Westbrook thing was a little, a little it's concerning. The popcorn a little spill there. You know, that, that, that didn't go over well. It was a little on the nose. I don't even think you would have written it that way. <laughs> it was a little on the nose. It's like, welcome to Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> exactly. Oh, goodness. I thought we'd gotten past it. No, we're both thrilled to have you and mortified about our own existence all at once. <laughs> so, uh Jokes aside, so I feel like we obviously want to talk to you about the series as a whole. We loved it. We sunk into it. We're so excited to be talking about it. But it's always best, I find, in these conversations that air after the finale to kind of start where we left the show and to get start with the finale. So Mm -hmm. in the conception of the story, why was it important to you that the, the crime was always going to be centered within the Ross family? And why was the ultimate killer, why was that important to you that the ultimate killer was Ryan? And I'm asking, I guess, as I've this is kind of how I've been talking about the show and you've heard us do it from the beginning, not just as this makes it a successful mystery, more along the lines of why was this particularly relevant to the emotional story that you wanted to tell? Why did you need to say this in order to finish the statement about this close knit community that can sometimes veer into an almost uncomfortable level of incest, frankly? Right. No, of of course. I think the show, you know, one of the ideas that I was always interested in the show was mercy, this idea of mercy. And if you look at the show as a whole, like, it starts with Aaron. Here's a girl that's never been shown any mercy in her life. The one act of mercy she's shown, it comes from Siobhan in episode one, who comes up to her and is like, hey, I'll give you a ride home. Are you okay? And she's so beaten down by life and her circumstances in life that she doesn't know how to accept it. And so she walks off into the woods. And ultimately that night is when she gets killed. Now, obviously, it's not just the a rejection of that, of, of the gesture that gets her killed, but it was an idea of mercy that I wanted to plant early in, in the series. And then I wanted it to pay off as much as possible, as emotionally as possible in the ending. And I think, so it was always, so I had all these characters in my head for about eight or nine months, but I had no idea how to end the show. And I've watched enough of these shows to know that, you know, you have to stick the landing in order for the audience to feel like they've, it was time well spent. Um, and so it was like, okay, what's an emotional ending that is surprising, but also is very much, you know, within the themes of the show, it can't just be this ridiculous ending that doesn't, you know, that feels totally outside of the world and the relationships we've created. And, and when I was going through the last, as I started to think about Ryan and what it would mean for our character journey of mayor, it started to make a lot of sense. Here's a woman that's lost a son. Here's a woman that has to confront the loss of a son. That's the most important thing. And how does she do that? And also I was convinced that we had to make that journey as hard as possible 
Like it, this is a woman that is like adamantly not going to confront the loss of a son that is being totally, that is always avoiding this, all, all the conversations and talk. And so in order to get Mayor Sheehan to go up into the attic, that has to be one hell of a gauntlet. And so what are the things that happen? And they have to be really devastating. And it made sense just as a parallel. Here's Lori, a friend in her life, her closest friend now that would have a child that she's going to lose as well. So just like, as I started to put those pieces in place, just the thematics of that were interesting. And then it came back to mercy, which is the ultimate act of mercy in the show. In my mind is Lori loving a child. That's that has caused her entire clan to fall apart. That is the ultimate act of mercy. And so when I started to put those pieces in place, it all kind of made sense in terms of the themes of the show. And how do you get mayor up in the attic at the end is like, oh, she has to, these are the things she has to, it has to be as hard as possible. And what would be incredibly hard is for Lori, it's, it's Lori, it's involving Lori somehow. And so I just started to put the pieces in place. I didn't have all the pieces in place, but I had a lot of them, but it made sense in terms of the emotion and the themes of the show that it would involve Lori. And then I just started to veer towards Ryan. So it, it started there um, and wanting to make it incredibly emotional arc in terms of Mayor and Lori. You, you started your answer by using the word mercy, which I think is so crucial to understanding the show and your reason for creating the show. And one of the things that I think must have been interesting for you and maybe frustrating at times as you've devoured, I mean, hopefully you were self-protective at some point, but <laughs> at least engaged with the coverage of the show was yep. that I feel like people fundamentally misunderstood and, may, and, and not in a malicious way because they didn't know sure. you're writing maybe and they were watching mm-hmm. the show in real time. How fundamentally the show was about kindness And the thing that I found so deeply moving about the finale is that that's where you left us. And then all of a sudden, everything else snapped into place. And you even heard, even I fell prey to this last week after saying for weeks, you know, I don't like to watch TV like a Redditor. But all of a sudden, I was coming up with a theory where Siobhan is a murderer. It was a good theory. Siobhan, but Siobhan who, who she, as Brad just said, shows mercy. I mean, she, that she yes. immediately absolved herself yeah. because she was the only kind person. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that our kind of like darkness ravaged prestige TV broken brains can't understand that this is a show about kind people. So we're always mm-hmm. looking for you know, Mare isn't going to survive or Helen's going to fall down the stairs. Well, I heard she did fall down the stairs, but yes, she's she not going to get, <laughs> but she's not going to get back up. Do, do, you, do you know what I, do you know what I'm getting at here? So, yeah, Andy, I'm, I'm really happy you say that because that was, it was written, you know, this is written in 2018 when, you know, we were in a place in this country where I was like, we've lost these ideals of kindness and compassion and mercy. And that was really what the show was about. Like it really always was about mercy. And I remember having these conversations with our producers early on and it's, you know, listen, it's hard to, how do you visualize mercy? Like it's often hard to have that as a theme in a show and have it be engaging, but it was always a show about mercy and kindness and compassion and how we need to take care of each other. And that's, it was always about those things. And it took some dark turns and I can, I understand why audience have been trained to go down those holes and, and try to pursue the crazier and darker assumptions and theories that they have. But it was always a show about that. And I'm, and, and that's why, in, in fact, the earliest, earliest script ended with Mayor and Lori on the ground in the kitchen as like, this is, this is what the show was always about. And then we realized, well, yes, but it's also about this woman who has to confront this thing and that she has to ascend and take, and then it became clear, okay, it has to end there. But, but the earliest scripts ended with that image of the two of those women on the floor and mayor holding her and saying, I'm here, which is a callback to the earlier homily when Deacon Mark says, 
um, here, which is a story that my uncle told me. That's a true story. My uncle was a priest at Merrimack and, and that incident happened to him where this woman came running up to him and said, you know, F your God, F him. And, and, and he said, I, he's like, I was so young. I didn't know what to say to her at that time. And so, but I'm so glad you say that because it was always that show. And I hope that the finale, if people lost track of those ideals and themes, I hope the finale is a way to come back to them because that's what I always intended the show to be about. I loved how the finale had um, callbacks to earlier moments in the series that weren't necessarily like clues. They were, they were, they were more like, I was struck by like Mare and Lori's relationship at the end of the show, mirroring Dawn and Bethy when, when Dawn decides not to tell Beth about Freddie extorting her as like Mm -hmm. an act of kindness, as an act of mercy, but this bond between these two friends and even the way that Mare goes about the last episode and sort of investigating and not letting go of this idea that, that there's something wrong with John's confession or that there's something that doesn't add up kind of reminds me of what Zabel's ideal of detective work is. You know, he's just like, you just have to keep working for you. You've done mm-hmm. a lot of feature work. What's it like to kind of plant those seeds in episode three and episode two and episode four and kind of hope that people see it in seven? That's the great. I mean, that's that's I've always seen myself as like, I'm not the smartest writer. I lean into setups and payoffs like that is my like that is my go to. And um, so I really wanted seven to be a really a series of payoffs like and the biggest one of them all is like, here's this, here's this security console that we set up in one, that we come back to in three, then we're back in the house in five. So we have all the check-ins that an audience would need to remember the house, at least, not necessarily the console itself, but like, and then it's the payoff, right? It's like, okay, she erased the thing. Now it's going to be there in seven. And so I think that is a great joy that I have as a writer. Like I am huge into setups and payoffs. And that is what I try to do in this in the finale is have those payoffs. Even I think the biggest payoff is Lori on the bench with mayor in episode four, I think saying like, you know, I won't let you. And then at the end, it's like, I'm not going to let you, I'm playing that. Yep. Exactly. So it's really a setup. It's, it's, it's really a series of payoffs that I hope are earned. That's the thing. Like, are they earned or are they cheap? I hope they're earned and I hope they're emotional. And so, um, so we'll see what audiences think, but I'm glad you guys have liked it. I'm glad you guys liked it. Well, no, I mean, I think I'm pretty dazzled by it because I think they're the, the two most difficult paths that are necessary for a successful script are structure and emotion. And often people excel at one or the other, or one is at war with the other, or sometimes people feel like they're incompatible. And again, you probably heard this in the kind of schizophrenic way in which I kept approaching the show, which was loving it and being lost in it, but also wanting to take a step back and saying, oh, look what he did there. And I guess I it's sort of a wide ranging, almost general question about how you structured the show, because even within the finale, you had cake and ate it, meaning you, you wrapped up everything in the first 10 minutes. And I t- paused and I was like, I would be satisfied with this. I'm okay with it being John. And then, f- mm-hmm. look, you know, check the timer. Oh, 50 more minutes of just <laughs> Mayor going to Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. Right. Uh, I would I would love that. Mm-hmm. But you're also playing with our expectation. There's a lot of time left on the clock. There's something else left to go. You know, similarly with the two cases, you had the propulsive mm-hmm. momentum of it, you know, that led to that incredible finale in episode five. And yeah. then that allowed space for the slow burn of the more emotional story you wanted to tell. So yeah. somewhere within me pointing out things that you did, like the Chris Farley interview, <laughs> I believe there is a question about how you balance the two and how you managed to pull it off. That, yeah, it's, you know, it's a great question. And I think structure was, 
I gotta be honest, I, in terms of writing movies, I've never been a big outliner. I've always kind of said to myself in a movie, I know where it starts emotionally and I know where it ends emotionally. And I can kind of figure out, you know, I have some scenes in between, but I've actually never been a huge outliner only because I have had the experience that when I outline things and I have a shopping list, then when I get to writing, I'm not allowing myself any room for discovery because you're kind of like just checking off all the items on the shopping list that you laid out. And you're like, Oh, this is the scene about this. Whereas it, you know, I like to sit with the story and characters tell you things that you didn't expect them to tell you when you had the initial idea. And so I actually love that there's a moment of discovery, but in this, like I had to use a different side of my brain because it, it, the structure was so important and it had to be so carefully structured. And so it was, it was using a side of my brain that I really hadn't done before. And even the finale, like, so we restructured the finale, like we totally restructured the finale because what we saw in the finale was, Oh, I like, I could see a structure that we had to go with, which is that, is that you split the two people apart. It's Mayor and Lori. And then you need to bring them back together. Whereas in the strip, we had this huge montage at the end in the back half where you got to see everybody and you got to, be, and you got to go to Dawn. And, and you saw a couple of those moments with it with Jess in the picture and Dawn getting in the house. All of that was at the back end in the script. Well, I watched it and go, I don't even care about that. All I care about is these two women. It's about these two women. This is what the emotion of the show is about. And so, so we moved things around. And so that the focus in the beginning is, is the fractured relationship. And then the story kind of expands again. And then it, and then it comes back down again. Like, and then the focus narrows. And so I think it was an awareness of structure, but then an awareness of being like, okay, what's working here and what's interesting to audiences. And I think being smart enough to say, Hey, that structure you had in mind isn't working, but we have enough good stuff here that we can, you know, essentially restructure it and use some of that to make the emotion even stronger. For a good example of that is, is, is the fifth episode. You know, we, we had this great song by Grouper that I was listened to all the time when I was writing these scenes about Kevin. It's the beautiful song. And we got into five and there was so much stuff happening in five. There's a lot of stuff happening in every episode. Some of them are over stuff, but, but, um, but we just felt like, Oh, structurally we can use this song by grouper and have it have an audience tie into the Kevin emotion of it. Because what happened uh, guys was we got to the end of five and mayors against that wall. And it's a, I mean, it was a crazy scene. It's suspenseful, but it wasn't emotional, really. It was because they will die, but but you're but we it had to be more emotional than it was. And so we used this song that we were able to place in the beginning of the episode when she sees him on the computer, and then in the middle of the episode, and then we were able to bring it back. Mm. So it was like it was an awareness of structure, but also an awareness of like emotion needs to be present. That the things that are happening aren't just procedural but they're emotional with mayor and so yeah it was i gotta be honest it was it was tricky but i think we were always aware of needing to ground it in mayor's emotion as much as possible yeah because you talk about that i mean andy and i referenced this a few times i think we we felt like what this show one of the things that was so refreshing about this show is that it played with some of the stuff that you've seen her since like true detective season one since 14 and Broadchurch and um night of and these great great limited mysteries I guess Broadchurch went on, but yep. how do you basically 
say, okay, these, these shows have shown us a way of doing these sort of stories in a different way. How do I do it different from them? Because I noticed a lot of what you're talking about with like, we have to finally end it with emotion. It can't be just a red herring, a fake out. Everybody slaps their forehead and can't wait till next Sunday. Because what they really want is to understand what this means to the people involved. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, th- I think that's such a great, it's such a great question. It's like, you know, when do you hold on to the tropes and when do you subvert them? And it's always a balancing act of like embracing the trope in a way, because a, this is a genre that has expectations and audiences come into these shows with expectations and they watch them because they expect the show to do certain things. And I think what we tried to do guys, and like, I hope we were successful is, is to embrace the genre expectations and cliches at times and not say, and not try to be entirely different all the time, but say, how do we elevate this in a way? And the way we always leaned on was like, just make everyone incredibly dimensional and human and make them real people as much as possible. And if we can do that, uh, then we'll have something because we'll get the genre fans who will come in, in an effort to solve the mystery, but you'll also get people that would watch other dramas and care about the characters. And I think it was always just like, how do we make these people human? And that was like, what we always try to do is just, is just make them as human and complex and inconsistent as, and also be specific. We know in the specific is the universal, like just be as specific about this place as possible and use that as the North star. And that's what we were always trying to do. It, it, you know, it wasn't a complete rejection of the tropes ever because you know, if I told you this story and you hadn't seen it, you would go, I've seen that a million times. A girl right. turns up in a creek, right. a detective has to solve the case. Wow. That's, that's not interesting. <laughs> so how do we make it interesting? And I think it was a, a commitment to at times subverting the genre, like the Zabel thing was pretty shocking, I think, but, but also, you know, trying to subvert the genre by making everyone a complete human being. And that's what we were always trying to lean on. You know, whenever we had a moment of doubt, it was like, how do we make these people real? You know, there's a moment that I I just want to call attention to in the finale that I think really highlights what you're talking about. And I hope it helps rewire people's brains, honestly, because one (laughs) of the things that the show taught people or reminded people is that if you invest in a large community of characters, it's it's win-win because you get a large community of wonderful characters you're excited <laughs> to see. You also get a rogues gallery, but that's secondary. And I thought there's a moment in the end where the camera, when uh, Mare tells her cousin that, that uh, Deacon Mark is out of prison and it mm-hmm. lingers on Neil Huff's face for a moment. And I yep. loved it because at that point, we know they're not guilty. And yes. if that was in episode two, we're like, oh, what's he hiding? But in fact, it's just like, he's a human character we <laughs> yeah. care about. And he yes. earned a reaction to this moment. And I feel yes. like that was a subtle uh, a subtle choice, but a really good one. And yes. now I'd like to ask you a question because I, I don't want to lose my, my, my momentum. This question might not be, I'm not sure. Like, this is a weird question to ask mm-hmm. in a Zoom room of three 40-something dudes from Philadelphia. <laughs> but I wanted to ask it anyway, which was really about the shows and by extension, your comfort level with the intimacy of female spaces, which I think was done, at least to my male eyes, was done very beautifully on the show. Obviously, coming out of the finale, we're thinking about the friendship between Mare and Lori, but also the, mm-hmm. the, the sequence of mothers and daughters and the challenges of those relationships, mothers yeah. and sons and mothers and mothers-in-laws. And, you know, and then also, I can't get out of my mind where the absolutely incandescent chemistry and relationship between Gene Smart and Kate Winslet ends up in that restaurant scene, which gives us everything and nothing and is exactly right. Yes, yes. Well, 
I'm so hopeful that all the women have the same emotion you have. And like, I hope they think we've done them justice. Cause I, that was, you know, it's all the, like, I wouldn't say all the men, but a lot of the men in the, in the show are pretty awful. And I think the real, I would say the joy of writing the show was to write all the female relationships. And, and that comes from being surrounded by women as a kid, you know, and, you know, just going over to my aunt's house and my mom had three sisters and we would spend every week, you know, as once a week we were at my grandmother's house in Drexel Hill, we were all eating dinner. And, um, I had a stutter as a kid, like really awful stutter. I didn't like to talk a lot. And so I would listen to, I would, I would just listen a lot and just listen to the conversations and also really just admire the way they would lean on each other and take care of each other. And they were aware of each other's problems and the needs of each other. And it was just, it was, it was, it was awesome. It remains awesome. I still have such a good relationship with all these women in my life. And so I think that was something that I wanted to honor in the show. And, um, as a, you know, as just an example of, of, of the women in my life. And I would also say I had amazing women on the show in Kate and Jean and Gary, Julianne, um, Enid. And so whenever there was a moment that didn't feel honest, I'd be like, guys, you're all mothers and sisters and tell me if this isn't working. And I think my great job on the set was to be a listener. And if Kate said, Hey Brad, I'm a, I'm a mom. I would never say that to my daughter. I would never say that to my mom was to be like, I'll change the line because you guys have experience and I have to listen to you because you know this stuff way better than I do. So I think it was, uh, it was, uh, it, all the, all the female relationships came from experience, but then I was smart enough to shut my mouth and take notes when they gave them to me. And uh, a testament to Kate and Julianne and Jean for saying to me a few times, Brad, this line is just, I would never, ever say this, change this. And I was, it's best idea wins. And I would always take theirs, you know? That leads perfectly to my next question, which is basically what's the difference between Mare on the page when you were first writing this in 2018 and Mare through the prism of Kate Winslet? Oh goodness. You know, I think Chris, I, 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 I think really early on in the process, I gave up ownership of Mary and Kate. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, Kate just, this is, I mean, she just goes so deep, is so committed to the details. I, if I told you the conversation, the length of conversations we had about, you know, just what Mayor would look like, the roots, the line, I mean, Kate went so deep with this character that all I could do was stand back and say, it's yours, Kate, like, and you run with it. But I have to say the thing I loved most about what Kate, what she was interested in Mary was the humor. And, and, and it, I think it was such a, it was so important to me to have humor in the show because it goes to really heavy places, dark places. And I was just, I was concerned really that are there enough moments of humor and Kate and Jean would always want to lean into the humor and to improvise moments of humor. And I think it's, it was such a huge part of the show that people could breathe, that it wasn't a death march, you know, that there were moments of levity in, in the middle of the crisis, in the middle of the sadness, there were moments of laughter. And I think the biggest surprise was, I think Kate's real, like I laugh a lot at mayor in the show. She does them. Yeah. Serious, she says horrible things, but I'm always laughing at her. And that I think was the biggest surprise that Kate was able to embrace that part of her and, and even elevate it in ways I never expected. It, the show works because it's funny. I mean, right from episode <laughs> one, once, once she starts limping, I'm like, okay, there's room for this here. Um, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, Brad, you're going to be answering versions of this question all day for the next few weeks. Yeah. And I apologize for asking, but we have to, because we've been thinking about it, which is, yeah. You've created a really vibrant and rich world here. Um, there are more crimes potentially in the future. Like, 
Kate, when we talked to her weeks ago, said she would love to play Mare again. Without, I'm not going to ask you to commit. You wouldn't break news on this podcast. But mm. is is there more in this tank? Is it a there, world? That and, you and before you answer to? that, let yeah. me just cold pitch you right here. I have <laughs> the way I say Mayor of Easttown. I often add a Y in there, so it sounds like I'm saying Mayor of Easttown. <laughs> who's the mayor? Maybe we go to straight Mayor of Easttown. Should I mean, she have the second season? Could you have the second season? We're going to actually meet the Mayor of Easttown. Uh, uh, it's a great. You know, it's funny. I I really conceived this story, and you guys have seen it now. As it has a beginning, it has a middle, and an end, and it really has an end. Um, it definitely ends, and so I always felt like the ending. It was satisfying emotionally. Having said that, like, you know, I know, listen, I could never have expected the show, you know, the people would watch the show, as many people would watch the show, and I'm just so happy that they have. Um, I think where Kate and I land on that is, like, if we can make it great, if we're convinced that we could do it, and it was, like, that it would be great. Now, listen, it's hard to, I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it's impossible to tell if something's going to be great, but if we can write scripts that we feel are, are compelling, emotional, then I think, I mean, listen, there's definitely a chance. I haven't cracked that idea yet, but I would certainly be open to like trying to crack it because, you know, listen, there's a part of me that wants to just say, Hey, it, it was what it was. It ends on a great note. It was always how I envisioned the show ending and go out. And there's also a part of me that's like, why would I deprive an audience of wanting to see uh, of of mayor and 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 gallery and hell? It, you know, it, it's it's hard to say no if an audience wants something and if we could do it in a way that we were convinced could be something special. Then I think there's definitely room there, you know, f- for us to pursue it. Or or I, Siobhan of Berkeley, that's sitting right there. <laughs> that's right there. So I know we're out of time, and we do, unfortunately we'll have to have you back hopefully in the future because we can ask yes. you things about like Evan Peters refusing to wear a scarf, like um, <laughs> like guy. Pierce being the ultimate HBO casting flex for a red herring. What was Richard's book really about? But really, we just want to leave you. There's only one question that we need to finish with, which is the show left us wondering. It's the last mystery left in Mayor of Easttown. Brad Inglesby, are you personally a yingling or a rolling rock guy? Oh, my God. On the record. That's Andy, that's such a good question. So in my youth, I was always yingling. Now I always okay. yingling. Right. So as yes. but as I've gotten older, I married a woman who grew up in Aston. Her dad only drinks rolling rock. So every time I go home, it's Rolling Rock now. And I have to be honest, guys, I've gotten used to Rolling Rock. And it's, so a, that's it's a crisp it's taste. It's, a, it's, it's, it's so crisp. And, and, and that's what I love about it. He always has them cold and it's incredibly crisp. And I've got to be honest, I, every time I go home, I'm like, I'll have a Rolling Rock now. So it's changed over time, guys. It's changed. Wow. We're breaking news here. Yeah. And there's a personal connection even to that. Um, Brad, thank you so much for the show, for your time. We just loved having it in our lives. We love talking about it. We love watching it. Uh, guys, again, I'm really grateful. I really appreciate you guys having it on the podcast and enjoying it. It means a lot to me. And I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brad. Take care, man. All right, guys. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thanks so much to Brad Inglesby. Uh, Andy and I will be back later in the week to do Top Chef and hopefully have uh, a couple surprise guests. <laughs> 